Good evening. So I'm going to tell you a story about my father. So it's partially my father's story, but it affected me so much in a part of my life that I have to start with his story. While I was growing up in the Bering Strait in Nome, Alaska, my dad was on this quest to open the border between Alaska and Russia before the fall of the Berlin Wall and before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it was an exciting time, and it was um, a, a, a you know, every, it was a, I don't want to say frustrating because I was such a little kid, but, um, you know, he, every, he was kind of an unpopular guy and people thought he was nutty. So he started this quest to open the border with a letter writing campaign to our delegation in DC, Senator Stevens, Senator Murkowski, Frank Murkowski, and Don Young, as well as Governor Cooper at the time. And he would write these letters from the auspices of the chairman of the, the Committee for Cooperation, Commerce, and Peace. And it's a committee of the Nome Chamber of Commerce for which he served as chairman of the board. So he would write these letters encouraging trade and commerce and tourism across the Bering Strait and to reunite the Eskimo families that had traded once before, before J. Edgar Hoover closed the border between Russia and Alaska in 1948 and hence severed family ties and trading and everything stopped with the Cold War. And at the time, his generation, you know, the communist threat was large and it was the Cold War and President Reagan was talking about the communist threat coming up from Nicaragua and their evil enemies and his generation had to hide under desks. Well, in, the, in Nome, in the Bering Strait, there are neighbors and my dad thought, this is crazy. There are neighbors over there and they're not invading us and we should be friends. And, and so he began this letter writing campaign and for a good long while, they just stuck it in the Jim Stimple file. This is a nutty person. And being a former Senate staffer, we do get these crazy letters, and you're just not sure what to do with them, so you stick them in a file. <laughs> so I could see you know, that kind of happening. And he also helped with people that wanted to you know, do big things across the Bering Strait, the first of which was Lynn Cox, this cold water swimmer from somewhere in Canada. And she had the idea of swimming from Little Diomede on the American side to Big Diomede on the Russian side, 2.5 miles across the international date line, and in a, just in a plain bathing suit. So I found myself, I was just five years old, and I remember it vividly and clearly, this lady standing on a rock on a calm, cold, foggy day, getting ready to jump in the Bering Strait and start swimming. And uh, she had a, a Danish or... Uh, one of those European, northern, Scandic, you know, hyperthermia doctors with her in a skin boat. <laughs> and so we were in a Lund boat, which is, uh, for those of you who have, you know, been to rural Alaska, it's common to go boating in a 19-inch Lund boat. And so there we were in the middle of the Bering Strait, getting ready to cross it, cross it across the international date line. And we got in a 19-foot Lund boat with Moses Milligrock and his wife Ruth and my dad. And my dad armed me with red, white, and blue balloons and American and Russian flags so that as we cross the strait, I can wave <laughs> peace and friendship <laughs> to our evil communist enemies. <laughs> and so we were crossing the strait, and the, she was swimming, and I was watching her swim, and the, and the fog just came down so heavily as fast as it you know, happens up there. And we couldn't see two feet in front of us. So as, as we approached the international date line, this, this flat boat that was large, came up and these Russian soldiers in uniform holding their AK-47s or the Kalashnikovs, I wasn't sure because I was five years old, <laughs> just stood there and they were very stern and they said, stop, turn around. 
you have no permission to cross the strait. And my dad in his broken English, uh, broken Russian was trying to express that we were following Lynn Cox and they just sternly said, stop, turn around. You have no permission to cross the strait. And so we did, we turned around in the fog and we continued back to Little Diomede and went on cautiously for a little while. And then all of a sudden, you know, not sure where we quite were going because if we go a little bit north here in the Arctic Ocean, if you go a little bit south here in the Bering Sea, neither which good places to be. Or if you go back to Russia, the last time Inuit hunters were caught straying across the international dateline, they were detained by the Russians for 40 days. And so neither of all the three options were a good choice and we were cautiously going back to Little Diomede. And out of the fog, these large boulders emerged and all of a sudden, the Anupiak lady said, we're not by little diamond. We're on the big diamond side. And all of a sudden, Moses, you know, from like his, just like Moses from the Bible, he recognized those boulders and he said, go this way, calmly. And so we calmly went that way. And we safely made it back to little diamond. That was my first experience with the Russians. And, you know, ha having that experience, it really profoundly affected me going forward. We, you know, the friendship flight occurred, which I won't talk about because my little brother got to go and I didn't get to go, so <laughs> I don't have any cool <laughs> stories, but that opened the border between Alaska and Russia. And then we had all these, you know, journalists from the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, National Geographic, and then all these explorers from China, well, I mean, <laughs> France and Britain and England and Austria, all these, you know, crazy, people that were wanting to cross the brain straight in any way that they could. And, uh, you know, I got to follow them across the state with my father. And so, you know, I realized that the Eskimos on the Russian side were super duper poor compared to the Americans, the American Eskimos. And I asked my dad, why are these people so poor? And he explained communism. And so it was there when I was 10, I decided I want a career in international affairs. My dad had made the brain straight an international hotspot. And I want to go back to D.C. and I want to be the United States Secretary of State. And so I had these huge aspirations to go back east. And I did. And I studied economics at George Mason University, which is the most anti-government, free market, libertarian <laughs> school in the United States. And I was so gung-ho for capitalism because I had seen communism on the Russian side. And I had, you know, it was back east that I realized how unique my experience had been growing up with my dad because he had shown that ordinary citizens, you know, citizen diplomats, community organizers can change the course of our nation, can change the course of our state, can change our, our communities just by having an idea and pursuing it and just going gung-ho. And that's the story I want to share with you tonight that, you know, we're talking about power politics and popularity, but you don't have to be the Secretary of State or you don't have to be an elected member of Congress. You just have to have a belief and an idea, and that's the most powerful thing in our democracy. Thanks. <laughs>